following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back to Larger for Life. I'm Matt Adams, hailing from the big city, the metro of Dillon, South Carolina. And you are listening to the Larger for Life podcast, a journey through the Westminster Larger Catechism. And if you were with us, our last episode where we handled question 24, asking what is sin, you know that it was the three amigos, uh, the original minds of this Larger for Life podcast. It was at a, a GRN council meeting where Sean Morris, Stephen Spendenweber, and myself were conversating about this uh, endeavor. And we decided to bring on some good friends, Nick Bullock and Derek Bright, but they are not with us again for this episode. Uh, and so we do have uh, Sean Morris in Knoxville, Tennessee. Sean, you want to say hello? Hello. And yes, the brain trust of the podcast is here this morning, and we're glad to be together. That's right. And then Stephen Spinnenweber, I won't make a joke about DeSantis Land, Florida, on this episode. Just kidding. I just did. How are you today, Spin? I'm well, but I did not get pork rinds between episodes like one of our hosts did. I won't say who, well, but pork rinds are the, uh, the food of Dillon County. Uh, the escargot of the That's right. you know, big steeple there it's, in Dillon County. Uh, I believe like, it's, pr uh, it's pronounced escargot, I believe. Escargot. Yeah. And, and Spin, you probably didn't, while we were signing on to our uh, studio here, I, I was lamenting with our, our buddy Sean because I thought I was buying salt and vinegar flavored pork rinds, but surprise, they are mustard flavor. And it's a little, it's a little weird. That's I'll be honest with you. Surprise. It's a little weird. At salt and vinegar chips, together with hers, salt and vinegar chips. They give you the most perfect acid burn on the <laughs> palate, uh, on the roof of your mouth. The roof of your mouth, yeah. That you can't taste anything for several hours, perhaps days afterward, but the pain was so worth it because it, those chips are so good. I'm, I'm really into the salt and vinegar almonds now, and if you get them Ooh. in those little bags, you can dump all that salt and vinegar flavor right into your mouth as you finish the almonds. It is... It's a glorious flavor, mm. Perry McCall. Glorious. See, Matt uh, went across the street to get him some pork rinds in between episodes. I already had mine here. They're on the shelf. I got I got a little stash of uh, Kroger brand barbecue pork rinds, and they're wonderful. You know, it's hilarious. You know, I, I am slowly turning into my father. You know, growing up as a kid, my father, he would always eat pork rinds. He loved pork rinds, and for whatever reason, I thought it was weird. And now here I am in my mid-30s, and they've become my go-to snack. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great. They're great. Just as great as uh, question 25 here mm. in the larger catechism, even though uh, we're continuing our, uh, our discussion uh, about sin and its consequences. But uh, so that's not great in and of itself. But, but nonetheless, we do have a great question. The Westminster Standards, the divines do a great, a great job at helping us feel the gravity of 
the gravity of our sinfulness. Um, and so question 25 asks, let me just go ahead and read it. Wherein consisteth the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? And here's the answer. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. Well, there's a lot there uh, for us to unpack on this episode uh, in question 25, but but Spin, you want to start us off as we emphasize, highlight uh, some of these aspects of this answer? Oh, yeah. So question 25, the way that I kind of look at it, and for those of you that might be following along, if you have a copy in front of you, original sin has three basic parts, according to this question. It consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. So when we're speaking about original sin, one part of original sin is the guilt that we inherit from Adam's first sin. The want, like we talked about last episode, the lack of original righteousness with which Adam was created at first, and then also the corruption of his of his nature, of his whole nature, as the shorter catechism says. Uh, the larger catechism is not denying that by virtue of the absence of that word, but uh, we see that those are the three parts of original sin. And then the consequence of original sin is we are utterly indisposed, disabled, made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. So that's what these three things do to us. It makes attaining righteousness according to our own obedience and impossibility. So this is all under that umbrella of original sin. And then it's very small, but it's very significant. That last clause of this question, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. So I think we're going to spend most of our time talking about original sins, and that's what most of this question is talking about. But before getting into that, I think it's helpful to make this distinction between original and actual sins. Actual sins, very clearly, proceed from our originally sinful state. And when we say actual, when the divines say actual, that does not mean actual as opposed to fictitious or imaginary or fake sins. This is speaking to, these are acts of the soul. These are the functions or the exercising of that original sin, that originally sinful condition with which we're all born. So uh, you think of, I don't know, a squirt gun, right? Um, whatever comes out of that nozzle, that's those are the actual transgressions, right? You know, the, the, the squirt gun and its, its composition, what it is, that's original sin, and this is what it does. And then when it does those things, whether these be sins in thought, word, or deed, and might I add, that actual transgressions don't just mean conscious acts of the soul, consciously sinning, but even those unconscious things, those non-deliberate, those unintentional sins, because the Bible does have a category for those. You think mm -hmm. of the cities of refuge for the manslayer. Whether you mean to do it 
or whether you don't mean to do it, when you do something that transgresses the law of God or lacks conformity thereunto, the Bible calls that an actual transgression. So mm -hmm. it's it's our sins in thought, word, and deed. So that's what actual transgressions are. And before moving on to really kind of unpacking those three parts of original sin and what it makes impossible for us, do you guys have any comments on actual sins? Well, just what you said was was great, and it's important to emphasize also that actual sins proceed from a sin nature. Um, we talked about this a few episodes ago. I made the, the silly analogy or illustration using a dog, but I think it is a useful one because this is the question that there's a there's disagreement on in the wider evangelical church, especially in North America, but I know elsewhere as well. Do we sin because we are sinners or are we sinners because we sin? And getting that order right reveals a lot about our theology. You might think, oh, that's just splitting hairs. That's just being pedantic. Well, it can be, but in this case, it's, it's not. It actually is... Uh, betraying a, a theological commitment. Do we, in doing bad things, is that what makes us a sinner? Or because we are inherently bad people, <laughs> that's why we do sinful things? And the Westminster Confession and classic biblical theology, Reformed theology, Calvinism would say it's the latter. Because we are inherently fallen, because we are by nature sinners, therefore we sin. And we are, why are we by nature sinners? Well, it's because of the original sin with, in which we are born, because of Adam's sin. So, like I said in that analogy, you know, the dog hunts because he is a dog. He is bred to hunt squirrels. He's bred to hunt foxes. That's why he he sniffs through the woods and digs under the leaves, and he's, he's, he's tracking the scent of that squirrel to hunt it down because he's bred to do so. It is inherent within his nature as a dog to hunt squirrels and foxes. Uh, if I did likewise, I would just look ridiculous and preposterous. Me crawling on all fours, sniffing the ground in pursuit of squirrels in the woods does not make me a dog. It's his dogness that makes him do those things. Well, likewise, our sin nature makes us do sin, do sinful things. It proceeds out of that original sin nature that we inherited from our father, Adam. You know, if you don't look at it in that way, uh, Sean, that we sin because we're sinners. It the the wrestling that that Paul's experiencing with his flesh in Romans 7 makes absolutely no sense. You know, he he he's it, it's it's almost heartbreaking to read it, but then you also feel yourself in that same that same struggle. I I know what I'm to do and yet I don't do it and I know what I'm not to do and yet I find myself keep you know, still doing it, or I, I keep doing it, uh, you know, a wretched man that I am, um, you know, that only makes sense when you understand this, this concept of original sin. And, and even when, uh, and even when we're, you know, converted, justified, we still wrestle with that, 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 that flesh that, that taints our, our new creation, uh, and that's what we're experiencing with with Paul in Romans seven. So I think it's you know very fitting for us to to make sure that we realize that that we sin because we are sinners. That that because of Adam's fall, right? We have this this inherited sinful nature um, that will that will unpack here in just a minute. Yeah, and and I understand. I'm I'm in, I'm quite sympathetic to people's. Um, struggle to to 
get their heads around this category. It's not a matter of people being smarter or smarter or wiser or less smart than others. No, it's it's I, I get it because you know if I were to describe to you a guy, say there's a man and he goes into work every day and he boils noodles and he sautes meat and he uh, fixes desserts and he mixes sauces and he creates these reductions. Well, what I'm just well, what is this man? Well, he's a chef. That's what he's doing. He's he's preparing food. He's preparing desserts. He's preparing drinks and side dishes and 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 beverages and 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 garnishes to go with these meals. By him doing these acts, he is doing the things that a chef does. That that that's 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 the nature of of his line of vocation. And, and so I, I understand that that's a, a general way that. You know, I can stand up and, and say I'm a chef and I don't do any of those things. Well, then you're not one. But the guy who goes uh, and works at the local restaurant in the kitchen and is doing all those activities, uh, he is he is laboring in the capacity of a chef. That's what makes him uh, a chef. He went to culinary school it's, and so forth. That's the general way I think that people conceive of these things. Oh, well, because you because a guy lies and cheats and and says nasty things and is dishonest, that's what makes him a sinner. In the same way that in the same way that boiling noodles for the spaghetti makes him a chef. It's it's not quite like that according to the scripture. No, it's it's more of that analogy uh, about the dog. Or you know, last week was election day. Because I am an American citizen, I went to the local precinct and cast my ballot. I exercised that right because I am an American citizen. Therefore, I got to vote. Um, if a person from Canada somehow snuck into the precinct and and got in line and cast a ballot, that doesn't make them an American citizen. It is not the casting of the ballot that makes them an American citizen. They didn't magically turn from Canadian into American. No, because I am an American citizen, therefore I vote. That's a more analogous uh, analogy than than the, the, the chef or the vocational one. And I think people in general tend to think of it more along those vocational lines of, because I do these things, the, the, the sum total of these actions are what make me into this category or this or this this label. Well, not when it comes to this according to the holy scripture, we sin because we are by nature sinners. Who we are determines what we do. The inverse is not correct. What we mm-hmm. do does not make us who we are. It is a consequence or a demonstration of who we are. So when we're talking about actual sin, these are activities, right? This is the activity of our sinful nature. So it's the difference between nature and activity, or we might say our composition and our conduct. Uh, We are originally sinful. That is how we come off the line by virtue of being descendants from Adam and Eve, according to ordinary generation, which will have, you know, uh, that segues into future episodes. So we won't go all the way there, but how Jesus Christ needed to not be a descendant of Adam, according to ordinary generation which speaks to the necessity of his virginal conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. But by virtue of the fact that we are all derived from Adam and Eve, we are the fruit, they are the root, therefore communicated to us is this condition called original sin, which gives rise to all the sinful things that we do. And original sin has these three parts. This is the sinfulness of the estate we're into which we all have fallen. It consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. I think we've touched on this recently, but you know, Sean, I, I'm, I'm not responsible for stuff that you've done. 
right? I'm not going to take the fall. I'm not going to take the blame for something that you've done. And it would be unrighteous of another person to hold me accountable for a sin that I didn't commit. How is it just that Adam's guilt is imputed to us just by way of reminder? Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. We, we touched on that, I believe, back in question 22. Uh, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? And I'll read it just because I have it in front of me. The covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Or as the old New England uh, primer, that children's rhyme would say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Adam's our first father. Adam is the the progenitor of all the human race, and he is the covenant or federal head. And so when he botched it, it botched it for all of us. Uh, that's And of course, the Apostle Paul makes a huge deal of this theology in his federal headship theology in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5. Uh, by one man, sin entered into the world, namely Adam. Uh, so as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's only two heads. You only got two covenant heads to choose from. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And so what's true in the negative sense is also true in the positive sense. Adam sinned and it botched it and it ruined it for all of us. But thanks be to God, hallelujah, in Christ, he was victorious. He triumphed. He f he succeeded where Adam failed. And so you didn't do it. I didn't do it. But the reward of his success gets attributed to us, even though we didn't do the action. Christ did the action. We get the benefits. Well, the inverse is true here um, with our father, Adam. He botched it. He ruined it. And the fallout is credited to us. Yeah, the guilt is credited to us. And that is fair because the merits of Adam, had he succeeded, also would have been imputed to us, credited to us, though we had not performed that obedience personally, that is ourselves. So when you, you mentioned Romans 5, it's Romans 5, 12 and 19. That's what the Westminster Divines use to proof text uh, these clauses. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Mm -hmm. I think that being made sinners, whether you take that as they're reckoned as sinners, I, I think for me, you know, because here guilt is a legal, it, it, it is a legal pronouncement or declaration yeah. that this person's guilty. That's right. Thinking um, in forensic categories. We're thinking in forensic categories. So I think that are all men simple? Yes, we're not denying that. But I think that what Romans 5.19 is really getting at is that for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We deny the Roman doctrine of the infusion of righteousness, that God accepts us as righteous because we're behaving righteously. No, we're made legally and forensically as righteous, righteous as Jesus is. Hmm. And so this is speaking again, that we inherit a guilty verdict on our heads. And we are actually sinful too, right? We, we are condemned even by the things that we do. But even before that, even before we commit any actual transgressions, and this obviously touches on some controversial topics or some things that really hit close to home, like, okay, do you mean to tell me that my child who you know, died in the utero or, or died in infancy, that they're originally sinful and that 
they're justly deserving of the wrath and curse of God. The reformed, we say with tears, yes, but we also do not believe that that is an obstacle, um, that God cannot convert even infant children who are born with this original sin, with this original guilt and corruption. Uh, we do believe in elect infants, and That's we're right. going to talk about that you know, yeah. later on. But, but you're right. In sin did my mother conceive me, David in Psalm 51. Not, and it's not that the, I'll use the adult term, the copulative act is itself sinful, that right. the procreative act is sinful, right. but it is saying that the fruit of that act, the fruit of ordinary generation, is going to be an originally sinful human being. And yes. so that's how David can say that. That's how Ephesians can use this very... I mean, it could be stark if you're not accustomed to it, but we were born children of wrath by nature, right? So there's something in our very being that is wrong, and this leads to the corruption of our nature, right? So we have that legal standing of guilty, right? But then we also, our nature is corrupted, mm -hmm. right? We... we um we lack the original righteousness of Adam. So talk about that because we've used the fourfold state of man, and I think it's helpful. It's a, a helpful tool to apply here now. What do we mean when we say that Adam was originally righteous, but that we lack that same original righteousness, guys? Yeah, Thomas Boston's human nature in the fourfold state. And so Adam and Eve, when they're placed in the garden before the fall, passe pacare. It was possible to sin, but they were created in an a, original state of righteousness. Let's just refer back to a few uh, questions ago uh, when, when we thought about uh, this this very thing. Let me find it here earlier uh, in, here we are, question 17 in the larger catechism. How did God create man? After God made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man out of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them, or endowed them, with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to fall. So, passe, pacari. It was possible to sin. There was a freedom there. There was a potentiality there. But God made them in that state of innocence, innocency, in righteousness. They were right. They were perfect. They lived in paradise. There was no flaw. There was no sin. There was no nothing wrong in the whole equation. That's how we all started out, our father Adam and our mother Eve. But that is not how we stayed, unfortunately. But they, as, as the question 25 here puts it, um, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created. So want, an archaic way of saying lack. So Adam was originally created in a state of righteousness, in paradise and perfection. He fell from it, and we fell from it. So we don't have that original righteousness. It, to put it this way, we're starting from behind from the moment we're born. We're not starting at square one. We're not starting neutral. You, you know, I, I think that's, again, we're not making fun of anybody. It's not a matter of intelligence. That's just a default way of human thinking. We think some contest has begun. Everyone starts on equal footing. It's zero, zero, and then we go from there. Well, no, not not in terms of human nature when we're born. We are born at negative 10 billion. 
we're not we're not born at zero and then at a neutral state and then we can hopefully make progress from there. No, we're starting from behind, way behind. Uh, we are lacking righteousness. We are starting sinful, and so we we can't even get back up to a neutral state, uh, much less beyond that, uh, without the grace and the help of God. It'd probably be helpful if I cut my microphone on when I want to speak, wouldn't it? Uh, I mean, more or less. Um, you know, I, you know, we're all dads of of young kids here. You know, no one had to teach our children to be disobedient. No one had to teach our our kids to to be mean to one another, you know, uh, or, or to pitch a fit when they, when they didn't get their way. I, you know, this idea of total depravity, especially with, in regards of, of, you know, being born with this, just this inherited nature of, of, of sinfulness. I mean, it, it's heavy because we, we like to look at our babies and talk about how cute they are, but they're not neutral beings. Right. Um, and they're definitely not good. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, if you ever want to see uh, an example of total depravity, come to the Adams household right around bath time and bedtime. You will see that <laughs> the, you'll see the doctrine of total depravity from me as the father to to the toddler Eliza at one years old. Uh, you know, we're we're everyone is showing the the grandeurs of their sinfulness. Okay. Um, but that's something we have to wrestle with, right? I mean, this is a gospel issue. Um, what we understand about ourselves. So, you know, we're not, you know, we're not born neutral. And then we're, you know, we got the pro- proverbial crossroads. Are we going to choose evil or choose good? Uh, nor do we believe in provenient grace either, right? That that's, that grace brings us halfway and then we have to choose Jesus and, and then we're then we're righteous. It's a, a dead in your sins and your trespasses, a, a totally depraved state. And again, just like we were talking about last episode, it, it backs you into a corner and it makes you look outside of yourself when you understand this inherited nature of, of utter sinfulness that we possess because of our uh, our our first parents of, of Adam and Eve and, and Eve. Yeah, it's so there's the the guilt of Adam's first sin, so this this trifold arrangement that, that Spin has helpfully outlined for us. The the guilt of Adam's first sin. I think I think this is an analogy that I used in a in a previous episode. I'm an American citizen. Uh, Congress votes to go to war. Well, I I didn't vote to go to war. I I didn't, I didn't go to Capitol Hill and cast my ballot. I, I didn't have any say in that. Well, you are at war nonetheless, whether you like it or not, because your government. Your representative in Congress or in the in in the House of Representatives in the Senate, who stands in for you, cast this ballot, and the body as a whole voted to go to war. So guess what? You're at war. Well, something like that with Adam. He botched it. He's my representative as the head of humanity, and now we're in that state of sin, whether I did I was there or not. Uh, there I am. So we're in a state of sin. We're born into this world. Uh, we are born into this world coming from behind, starting out from behind at, at a disadvantage. And that, of course, even that word disadvantage uh, downplays the seriousness of it all. But we are born with that lack of righteousness. Uh, we don't have a neutral state. But then further, there's a corruption of nature. There's a corruption of nature. So we've been thinking that, about that forensic aspect of I'm legally sinful before a holy God on account of my father Adam's sin. 
but it's not just a legal standing. There actually is a real, tangible space-time corruption, a defilement of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I do poorly. I choose wrongly. I love that which is wicked and evil. I'm inclined to do sinful things. It's not just a legal stamp that's upon me. If you're in a bad category, so praise the Lord for Jesus Christ because you're in a bad category and you got to get out of that bad category. I am in a bad category. I am in a bad forensic category. But more than that, I have a real corruption. There's something wrong with my heart. My soul is predisposed to chase after evil. I don't love that which is good. As I tell my kids all the time, sin ruins everything. Sin poisons everything. So it's not just merely a legal category or legal declaration. It's a a poison. It's a, it's a it's a tainting. It's like a a snake's venom when it bites you and it begins to flow through the veins and it gets th- courses throughout your whole body. It brings its ruinous effect upon all parts, all faculties, all of our members, the way we think, and we'll, I guess we'll probably touch on that, the noetic effects of sin, but the way we think, the way we feel, the way we perceive, the things we do, the things we say, all of it. Yeah, James 3, 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And so we have a nature that only proceeds therefrom salt water, right? We don't have fresh water that is refreshing you know to the drinker uh by virtue of this corrupted nature right we are the corrupted spring everything that proceeds from us is going to be corrupted it's like something coming off the factory assembly line and if it's corrupted it's not going to yield correct or right results it's not going to satisfy the design for which it was originally made and that there's when a deep and a abiding curve. flaw in right. the production machine. So the product that it yields is going to be flawed. And what do we do with those? I mean, we return them to Amazon or we just throw them away. Uh, but And God would have been right to do that. Mm-hmm. But by his grace, he saved us. And he doesn't just pardon our sin, but through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the resulting sanctification... He renews us in the inner man, we're going to talk about sanctification, and conforms us evermore into the image of Jesus Christ so that we would not just be declared legally righteous, but that we would also, in gratitude and thanksgiving, behave righteously and in a way that is pleasing to God. And so because we lack a right nature, we are therefore, here's the consequence, whereby, in light of everything that has been said, in light of the fact that We have guilt. We have a lack of original righteousness. We're inclined to the righteous things of God like Adam was, but inclined to all evil. And because our nature is just corrupted, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, right? So this, once again, teaches us that how can even the good things that are according to the manner of God's law, you know, the matter of them, they may be something that God commands mm-hmm. by virtue of them proceeding from the corrupted creature. How can they be spotless, perfect and satisfyingly righteous to God? They can't. can't. Yeah. Uh, so this really does, I think, dismantle that whole notion of 
God's grace gets me started, but then I need to make up the difference by my own works. Right. Right. So I get this, and we're going to talk about this later in the question on justification, the difference between imputation versus infusion. But to illustrate it, it's not like God in salvation fills your tank up halfway and you know, you need to fill up the rest of the tank so as to arrive at your destination. Uh, it, it's not like that. Uh, it's not like God giving you gas in your righteousness tank and then your own four wheels are what get you from the starting line to the finish line. That's that's not what we believe. That's the doctrine of infusion, that God gives us this ability to merit salvation. We believe in the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. So to use that illustration again, it's not like gas being put in your tank. It's like you being put on a trailer and being carried from mm -hmm. the starting line to the finish. And that is the free grace of God. By grace, we begin. By grace, we continue. And by grace, we finish. Yes. So you're made wholly disabled, opposite unto all spiritually good things. And so, no, the, the gospel is not something of what Jesus did commingled in there with the good stuff that you do because the things that you do aren't good. They're not good enough. And so you need the perfect righteousness of Jesus in the place of those. And, and I want to talk about this too at some point, the filthy rags, right? Mm -hmm. um, the filthy rags of our righteousness and um Divorce from the righteousness of Christ. That is only an apt descriptor of those things that we bring to God, sort of like those maimed and uh, blemished sacrifices that they were yeah. bringing to God in the temple, yeah. uh, of which the prophet critiqued. That's like what we bring to God when we, in any way, plume ourselves on our own righteousness or our own obedience. Yeah, that is that is worth getting into. Before we go there, I think it's worth just spending a moment or two on total depravity. We've already touched on it, but it's worth saying just a, a bit more, because this is what, as we're thinking about corruption of our natures, as we're thinking about the corruption that our sinfulness brings, that our sin brings, um, that, that's, what, that's what it's talking about, total depravity. And I, I, think, I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding of what we mean by total depravity. Quite simply, it means that the, the corruption of our nature is complete or it's total. It touches all of our faculties, our totality of self. Our mind is touched by sin. Our health is touched by sin. That's why we get sick and we die. Our emotions are tainted by sin. Our our affections are tainted by sin. Our intellect is tainted by sin. We don't even perceive and understand things rightly because we're tainted by sin. That's why we need special revelation. That's why we need the Bible. We need God to communicate to us because there's things that we're not discerning or ascertaining by nature because even our minds have been polluted by sin. Depravity is total. There's no aspect of our person that that depravity, that that sin doesn't touch. It depraves all of it. Mind, heart, body, health, affections, will, emotions, soul, all of it. Total depravity. And then, as you were getting at, Spin, as we talked about a little bit last episode and even just a moment uh, just a moment ago here on this episode, the good things that an unsaved, an unregenerate person might do, 
How do we how do we reckon those? How do we reckon those? And I, I really appreciate the answer that Voss gives in his commentary. He says, "Does total depravity of nature mean that an unsaved person cannot do anything good?" And he says, "No. The unsaved person, by God's common grace or restraining power, can do things that are good within the civil or human sphere. For example, an unsaved person may save another person from drowning at the risk of his own life, but." The unsaved person can do nothing that is spiritually good, that is, nothing truly good or pleasing in God's sight. He may do things that are good in themselves, but he never does them with the right motive, namely, to love, serve, and please God. Therefore, even the good, quote-unquote, works of the unsaved person are spoiled and corrupted by sin. And yet, this is totally flies in the face of our, our modern culture and the way we esteem ourselves, those who, he says, Voss goes on, those who pride themselves on their modern spirit, their attitude toward the doctrine of total depravity, they, they ridicule and scoff at this truth of God's word. And we see both of those things, don't we? There's sometimes there's a misunderstanding about the doctrine of total depravity, but people aren't hostile against it. They just maybe haven't been taught it or they're trying to get their, their heads around it. But then there's other wings where they outrightly mock and scoff at this doctrine of total depravity. Now, Spin, you were asking about this this language of filthy rags, you know, uh, how that language from Isaiah, that imagery of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Um, and of course, the if I understand the commentaries correctly, I mean, Isaiah's getting pretty graphic there. I think in, in some commentator, it's even suggested that he has in view uh, the menstrual rags that, that a woman might have to use. And so our righteousness in and of ourselves is filthy, it is putrid, it is vile, it is wholly unacceptable, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly unacceptable. It'll it'll amount to nothing, it'll merit nothing. There's this, Our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. But what about for the regenerate Christian? For the man, for the woman, for the boy, for the girl who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is united to him by faith. Are his, are his efforts stumbling and inconsistent though they may be? His earnest, sincere efforts towards doing that which is good and right and God-pleasing, are those as filthy rags to God? Does he despise those? And the answer is no. Uh, let's turn to our confession just for a second. You highlighted a section uh, a little bit ago from chapter 16 regarding good works. Well, there's another wonderful paragraph in there talking about good works. I think it was last episode we made reference to this chapter, so we'll bring it back again in this episode. So chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, uh, section 6. So the previous paragraph, it talks about how um, the virtuous works done by the unregenerate man, um, they're good in and of themselves, but they are mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they can can ultimately do nothing. But section 6, notwithstanding... The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Your good works, Christian, that are done in Christ, in Christ is key, please your Father. Your sincere good works, however frail, bumbling, stumbling, and imperfect they may be, when they are done in and through Christ, are pleasing to your Father. 
I have an analogy that I'm borrowing from my, my, my friend Scott Lucky. Yes, that is his name. And he often will make this analogy of, think of a child, a toddler who's just learning how to walk. You're teaching your child how to walk. They're getting up, they're, they're slowly getting out of that crawling phase, and they're trying to walk across the room. When they start walking, do they ever do it right the first time? No, of course not. They trip over their own feet. They, they don't look where they're going. They bump into the couch. They, they fall over blocks and toys on the floor, and they, they look silly, and it's, it's very imperfect. It's, it's, it's hilarious to watch. And as you're the father or the mother that's trying to coach your young toddler to learn how to walk and to improve in their walking, when they goof up, do you look at them and say, stupid baby? No, of course you don't. Of course you don't. Well, likewise, with God our Father, our efforts are stumbling. Our efforts are imperfect. Our efforts will hopefully slowly improve throughout this life, though never attaining perfection until glory. God doesn't sit there on his chair and mock us at our fumbling, stumbling, bumbling efforts and say, you stupid baby, you stupid child of mine. No, he is pleased with those those silly to us, silly, seeming, bumbling, stumbling efforts that we're making. Uh, however, accompanied with however many imperfections they are, though sincere, he is pleased with them in and through his son. Sean, this ties right back in to, to something we were discussing on the, on the previous podcast, this idea of a, a life that is pleasing to the Father, though imperfect. Uh, to use that Thomas Watson illustration again, the Father puts Christ the Son and the Savior uh, on the scales and and therefore he can he can look upon it and he can say in Christ these these most feeble attempts these bumbling attempts are 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 good um are 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 my delight um and, and I I love that illustration that you gave about or maybe stole you you admitted you stole it right uh that, that I, mean, I gave proper that you stole. I, I, I gave proper attribution <laughs> i cited my yeah, sources yeah. right there you go there you go can't get you for plagiarizing today that's right um i mean it, it makes so much sense right i mean when we when we understand you know as a father looks upon his toddler uh with pride and 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 joy and and, and delight the father in heaven looks upon us as we as we seek to to live in righteousness to live unto righteousness he he is pleased you know and and you know i the the scary thing is about you know about our our theology and 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 especially with the with the cage stage calvinists that that we once all were uh, mm-hmm. when we came to reformed theology you know, we we take something like you know we this is exactly what we're trying to get to. We take something like Isaiah's words, "Your best deeds, your righteousness are, are, are filthy rags; they're despicable." Um, and and that is that's an overbearing, almost dictatorship mentality of of God. If we see it in those terms, um, yes, we want to rightly highlight the 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 total depravity of man yes we want to to highlight our 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 sins of omission and how we're uh falling short of god's standard and yet god is not a a host you know a hostile dictator uh shaming us and despising us um he is our father who says to us 
just as he said to the Lord and Savior Jesus, I am well pleased in you because you stand in in the righteousness of Christ. That That, that is a remarkable picture that the Father in heaven could delight in us. Um, and in John chapter 17, that high priestly prayer, you know, Jesus, he, he's praying for his disciples and he is... And he is praying to the Father, Father, please do not tarry. I know that I'm about to leave, uh, but please do not tarry to send me back because I delight in being in their presence. These these disciples, right, who have who've botched it time and time again, who've been those wobbly and and falling toddlers. They've missed the point of Jesus' miracles. They've missed the point of Jesus' teaching. They think they're you know can stand firm for for the gospel and. and you know, Peter, you know, and Luke, I, Lord, if it means that I must die for you. And then a little teenage girl leads them astray around the fire pit. That's right. Um, I mean, it, it's just, I mean, we look at the disciples and, and we go, what buffoons? I mean, and, and yet Jesus is saying, Father in heaven, I'm about to lead these men. And I, I already, I want to be back with them. Mm-hmm. It, it's a delight for me to be in their presence. And, and and me and theirs. And, and so, you know, I, I don't want to try to elevate us into something that we're not, but but there is there's a sense in which, you know, the father truly delights in his uh in his children. Um and and that is uh that's remarkable. It's a remarkable grace that that we could be so utterly sinful. I I'm always, you know. I always focus in on the way that this catechism question says it, that we're made opposite to righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. That he can look upon us and be, we can be opposite to righteousness, but in Christ, uh, we are, we are declared righteous and and there is a delighting, uh, in the father, uh, with us, his children, as we, as we labor on and pilgrim well, uh, in and through uh, Jesus, His Son, and and our Savior. Yeah, that's that's right. In, in in the same way that the dad of his little girl is, he he knows that her her attempts at walking are they're not excellent, they're not ideal, they're not what they should be, but he's pleased with her growth and he's pleased with her improvement and he's pleased with her attempts. It it brings him pleasure and gladness. So it is with our Father. We are not what we should be, what we ought to be. We are not what we shall be, but God is pleased with our growth in him. He really is. Spin. Yeah, and my my favorite question in the Shorter Catechism, question 87, repentance unto life. Uh, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, you don't minimize it, we don't excuse it, we don't explain it away, but we really look at it. And I think that questions 24 and 25 and uh, the questions after this are really going to give us a nice, hard look at sin. Uh, you would be hard-pressed to read these questions and not cry out with the Apostle Paul, woe is me, right? Or with Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a generation in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So we have to have a true sense of our sin. But if we only saw our sin, we would be utterly undone. And so the question continues, It's out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Mm -hmm. That sinner doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You can only repent if you know your sin truly 
and if you know Christ truly, if you know the mercy of God that is in Christ. And so even in the midst of this really dark chapter, right? These are some heavy questions in yeah, that's right. the Westminster larger catechism. We do just want to tell people that there, there is gospel hope, even if you, and I hope you do, I hope the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see that, yeah, this is not describing someone out there, but this is describing me and my utter inability and my uh, being made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil. The transformative power of God through the Holy Spirit takes hearts of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, so that way you're declared, right, according to Christ's righteousness, not guilty, and then you are able to live in gospel freedom through the power of the Spirit at work in you, transforming you after the image and into the image of Jesus thereafter. So uh, you only get to appreciate the good news and how good it is when you look at how bad the bad news is. And so exactly these, right. these questions have done just that. But we, I mean, as we're kind of wrapping up here, we do have good news because we are giving away another book in That's this quite... sode. Are we not, Sean? That is right. That is right. Yes, the good news doesn't make any sense apart from the bad news. And so as we think about the doctrine of total depravity, we realize how desperate we are, how awful our <laughs> our own attempts at righteousness are, how badly we need a Savior, and how marvelous he is. And this, as uh, dark, as you said, as dark and foreboding as this doctrine of total depravity that's and the, the theological implications that are explored here in this question 25, as dark and sobering as they are, uh, it makes us all the more grateful for Christ as it points us to hopefully understanding even more how majestic and glorious he is, and what a rescue he's given us. So, today's giveaway, this is, here we are recording this in the year of 2023. This is the year of Machen. This is the centenary of Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. And we have a copy here of J. Grissom Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, made available to us by our friends at Ligonier Ministries. They've made some very nice uh, gift copy editions, 100th anniversary editions of this book. And even though Christianity and Liberalism might sound like this was the debate of theological camps in uh, the American Protestant Church in the early 1900s. The things that he talks about here are perennially relevant, and I'm not going to give a book review. I, I'll restrain myself. I, my heart wants to give a book review, but we're short on time, so I'll restrain myself. I won't give a book review, but you'll love it. You'll benefit from it, and even some of the chapters that are contained within it really touch on some of the things we've been thinking about in today's episode. When you read chapter 3 of, of Machen's book on God and man, or chapter 5 on Christ, or chapter 6 on salvation, uh, he's going to be touching on this doctrine of sin and doctrine of total depravity, and how the ministry of a biblical church needs to be talking about these things and point them to what a glorious Savior Christ is in order to rescue an utterly depraved people who are so desperately in need of rescue. Sin, the doctrine of sin and doctrine of depravity has a lot to do with the things he was concerned about and the way that some camps in the church were really trying to avoid this stuff and trying to downplay it. So, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. We have a couple copies of this book, so we'll give out more editions in the weeks to come. But, as always, if you would take this episode... Rather, take take the social media post about this episode, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter. If you would retweet it, if you would share this post, and we'll take note of that, and your name will be entered into a drawing to win. So if you'll find this 
podcast on whatever podcast platform is of your choice. If you would share this episode and repost this episode, we'll be entering your name into a drawing to win a copy of this lovely edition of Christianity and Liberalism and trust that uh, you'll greatly enjoy it and benefit from it. And if you are the winner and you already have a copy of this book, well, we'll send it to you anyway, and you just find a friend that you think could benefit from it and give it to them and let them enjoy it. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you with us uh, for this episode of, of Larger for Life. Uh, for myself, Sean, and Spin, thank you for uh, diving deep into the, the hard subject of sin and sinfulness and, and even the consequences of, of our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin upon, upon us. And, and uh, we hope you'll join us next time. Uh, as we continue our journey through the larger catechism. But in the words of our uh, great friend, Nick Bullitt, bye-bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Thank you.